0: a young perspective on hot button issues around the world this
1: is the hub hello and welcome to the hub on ctpn and monguan in beijing fresh data released on tuesday from china's general administration of customs shows mixed results for imports and exports and the drop in net foreign direct investment of china trade for the first seven months grew year on year but by a very slim margin of just 0.4%. On the other hand, China's GDP grew in the first half of the year, stood at 5.5%, which is in line with the full-year target of, quote-unquote, around 5% for the year 2023. So analysts are now trying to predict if global headwinds will bear down on China more heavily than expected, including the just-announced technology restrictions announced by the Biden administration targeting China. What do these newly released data tell us about the state of the Chinese economy going forward? To discuss all these, I'm pleased to be joined from Singapore by Emmanuel Daniel, founder of The Asian Banker and co-author of the book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is here. From Henderson, Nevada, we have William Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute. In our Beijing studio, we have John Gunn, vice president of research and strategy at the Israel branch of the University of International Business and Economics. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Let me start with you, William. In July, we have this data from National Bureau of Statistics releasing its quarterly findings, showing that China's second quarter GDP growth uh, stood at 6.3% year on year. That is a very high uh, growth number. But if you put that into perspective, that is coming from a very low base of last year of 0.4%. When Shanghai was in lockdown when much of China was in lockdown what do you make of China's economic data
2: well the way that uh, most economists are looking at the GDP numbers is to look at the quarterly patterns and you saw that the first quarter was very very strong once the restrictions were lifted but the momentum seemed to be f- disappearing in the second quarter and that's the worrying aspect of it is that the the components that were slowing down were the components that the uh, would be the drivers for uh, China's growth, which is domestic consumption, domestic investment, especially from the private sector. So those are the elements that, uh, that we in the West and other analysts are worried about in terms of China sustaining its economic momentum. Do you see any bright spots at all? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the fact that the Chinese consumption was so strong in the first quarter and with the lifting of restrictions, there's an enormous amount of uh, international travel.
1: Emmanuel, what do you make of the Chinese data? I mean, uh, there are different components of it. If you look at investment, consumption, and next export, they tell us different stories. And as William has just put it, uh, if you do it uh, quarter by quarter or month by month, uh, we see different things. I come from the banking industry, and what I saw was that Uh, There was a lot of
3: liberalisation of uh, assets, of lending back into the economy, but a lot of that went to state-owned enterprises, and I think that's where the quarterly jump uh, that we saw taking place. Some of it is uh, state-sponsored incentives. Uh, what the state wanted to see was uh, increase in uh, consumption uh, and that's where uh, it, has, it continues to be soft. Uh, so you're right, uh, it's uh, very, very sectoral. At the moment, the state is sponsoring the growth in the hope that uh, it will buy some time to see uh, greater consumption.
1: Professor Zhang Gong, uh, let's talk about these data, uh, 5.5% for the first half of the year, which is in line for the 5% target set out uh, from the National People's Congress on the 6.3% year-on-year for the second quarter. What do you make of these figures?
0: Well, I think um, it's generally expected that right after the pandemic is gone, there's a big spike uh, in economic activities, and then there's going to be a tapering off. You know, the expectation is that, or the hope is that the, the tapering off is not be that dramatic. But you know, the second quarter number, even though it's six point three percent, as you said, you know, very weak base last year. In overall, I would say that the uh, the recovery in the second quarter tends to be a little bit aemic. And it's a mistake because of several reasons, in my view. One is that um, you know I think uh, uh, in China right now, uh, people who have money. Uh, have already spent a lot of money, uh, you know, second quarter and first quarter. Um, and we know that um, the savings at banks is, was very high, actually, for the last two years. So the people who have money have already spent a lot of money, in my view. Um, it's the people who are financially constrained that are very lagging behind in terms of consumption. We've been saying that consumption is weak. It's mostly coming from this group of people. It's not like they don't want to spend money. They don't want to consume. It's really, they don't have money in the bank. And sometimes a lot of people, you know, still don't have full employment at this point. So I think the, the issue is really, uh, you know, we need investment into the economy, especially from the private sector. And clearly, you know, all indications are showing that these investments are very weak from the private sector. That hampers the creation of jobs that can percolate down to the income, for these sort of middle to lower strata of the society. And that can eventually drive consumption. So I think, um, you know, my good friend uh, Wang Wen, you know Wang Wen, right, yeah. the, uh, the Dean at the Renmin University, uh, Song Institute, he actually had wrote a very interesting article recently. He said that the problem is really with respect to investment. And inspe- investment, how to um, propel and incentivize private investment is really the key to solve the current economic conundrum. The government has been talking about and coming up with a couple of measures, right? Policy measures to try to jumpstart consumption as well as investment. And I think there's still a lot of room to um, strive in that direction. I think overall, we really need to have a stable political as well as a market environment where private investors have confidence and also have security to invest for the future. And I think these are the fundamental means to drive economic growth and also drive the income levels for the people who haven't really spent a lot of money so far.
1: On employment, or unemployment rather, Mm -hmm. youth unemployment data released by the Chinese government Mm -hmm. stood at 21.3% that Mm -hmm. is considered the highest since 2018. uh, We have 1.2 million college graduates going into the job market every year. What do you make of this figure? Should we be alarmed?
0: Um, well, it's, it's a very high number, of course. You know, at surface level, you know, we, th- we think it's very shocking and I should be de- very, definitely very about. But I think, you know, as economists, I do want to point out the difference between this number and the traditional unemployment figure, as we understand it. My understanding is that this number is collected at a university level at the time when students graduate from a university to see how many people have a job on hand, how many people, students, who don't have a job. And clearly, this number is not going to be remaining the same month after month after they graduate, it's gonna come down. It's gonna take some time for some students to find a job, and so this number, unlike the unemployment number, which is, tends to be a little bit stable, right? You know, 4%, 5%, month after month, month after month, this number's gonna go down. You know, We know this number's going go down. This is a very specific towards the graduating wave of students. It's only talking about these students. So I think- um,
1: Instead of everyone seeking a job in the job market,
0: the graduate students, you know, the, the, who are graduating this, this year, right, this semester, and um, for some of them, it's going to take a little bit of time for them to find jobs. So let's say six months after this number is collected, I would bet that 20% is not going to be 20%. It's going to be maybe, you know, 15%, 10% even, right? So as time goes by, this number is going to drop down. The question is how much lower is going to drop down? So I think this number, at least in my view, When we compare to the traditional unemployment figure, this number should be taken with a grain of salt. It's not the traditional unemployment figure as we think about it.
1: Uh, You're saying that it's structural unemployment uh, with seasonal factors Mm -hmm. uh, kicking in. Um, William, how do you look at the Chinese youth unemployment figure, which stood at uh, 21.3%?
2: Well, John has an interesting spin on that number, the fact that it will go down over time. As an analyst uh, from the West, I've looked at that number for the pre-COVID period, and it was much lower. So it says a lot about the ability of the Chinese economy to absorb new graduates now compared to pre-COVID, and it it clearly is much more difficult. there has been changes in the attitude of the government toward the private sector, which is the main absorber of college graduates. Uh, Some of the high-tech companies are the Alibabas, Tencent, and, and Internet companies have been told to cut back uh, on their activities uh, because they were not doing things in a way that was uh, to the approval of the state uh, uh, authorities. And so I think that's one of the problems is that one of the main absorbers of the youth uh, graduating from college, that sector has been, the policies have been sort of flip-flopping from one side to to the other. And I think if the government were to really encourage the private sector to be uh, more confident that it will be supported by the state, I think the absorption problem will be solved much more quickly.
1: William, you talk about the private sector. Recently, the Politburo, uh, a powerful organization within the CPC, as well as the State Council of China, both issued uh, directives. Uh, they held uh, seminars uh, you know, issuing policy documents saying that they will stimulate the private uh, enterprises How do you see the gestures from the very top trickling down to hopefully stimulate the private sector?
2: That was the best news I've heard um, in the last year, that the state council and the government really has tried to reaffirm its support for the market economy, its support for the private sector, and its recognition of the importance of the private sector in the Chinese economy. And I think that's the best news that we've heard yet. And I hope that uh, it will actually be implemented in actual policies that instead of just uh, themes that were, were talked about, that the actual policies that are put in place will allow the private sector to expand and thrive.
1: Uh, Emmanuel, let me ask you about the uh, real estate sector, which has been a main driver of the Chinese economy. Uh, recently, the Chinese government uh, issued new policies uh, encouraging banks to lower interest rates on existing mortgages and also hopefully to lower down payment for first properties of residents. How much of a stimulus do you think that will be?
3: Well, uh, that's one. one. I, that's what I referred to uh, in my first comment on the GDP growth. Uh, which is that a lot of it has been structural uh, and very focused on the banking system Uh, and so releasing liquidity into the marketplace was one of the first things the government did after COVID Uh, and that's the number that we're seeing in the GDP growth figures. Uh, In terms of property demand uh, and asset creation Uh, we've not seen inflation uh, going up very much. In fact, China is the one country in the world that has not seen inflationary pressures, and it can do well with much more inflation. With inflation, the application of bank lending to assets uh, becomes more meaningful. And there we start to look at demand for property Uh, and I think that what's driving that is uh, very soft sentiment uh, in the property market, uh, although there has been incentives to uh, continue construction and so on. From an external point of view, what China really needs to build on and I think the government is buying time to build these structures is to also expand uh, the asset classes that, so that it will not be property centric. Uh, you know, it's very easy to go in back and create demand but I think that the overall intention is to broaden demand base uh, and that's a harder thing to do.
1: Emmanuel, uh, you talk about the inflation. In fact, the inflation figure for July for China is minus 0.3 percent. So some people are asking if China is facing deflationary pressure. How big a problem is that? From outside of China, that's
3: the big question that is being asked. Uh, is China entering a deflationary phase? Uh, Not necessarily so. There is still time to recreate demand uh, and spending. And China does have a, a very strong domestic marketplace. Uh, and I think that it's also affected by external demand. So it's not a China problem, it's a global problem uh, where external demand is weak at the moment. Uh, and I think that once we see uh, the global trade figures start to ramp up, uh, it will have an effect uh, on demand in China and in return uh, you know, wages and then from wages uh, back to inflation again.
1: Let's talk about trade. According to the latest release from the General Administration of Customs of China on Tuesday, China's total imports and exports expanded by 0.4% to around 23 trillion yuan, that is 3 trillion US dollars in the first seven months of the year. Compared with the same period last year, exports reached 13.5 trillion yuan, while imports reached 10 million yuan, seeing a 1.5% increase and a 1.1% decrease respectively. But in May, export dropped to minus 7.5%, uh, dropped by 7.5%. Uh, in June, minus 12.4%. Those are the export uh, decreases. Um, Professor John, what do you make of these trade figures?
0: Well, um, exports are certainly weakening in the last few months. Um, but I think what's still a little bit uh, comforting to me is that at least it's not just China-specific. I mean, across the board, exports have been weak. I mean, if we compare China's exports with, say, um, you know, South Korea, Vietnam, China China's not bad at all. So it's not just a China problem. It's the entire global problem right now because we're facing economic headwinds. However, I do want to point out that um, there might be also structural changes going on as well. I know a lot of companies uh, in China, foreign companies operating in China have been adopting the China plus one strategy, right? So, you know, the decoupling- China coupling, plus one. Yeah, China plus one, yeah. So, which means? Which means that um, they have operations in China, but they also want to establish another location of production outside of China as part of the supply chain network. Uh, a lot of companies went to Mexico, for example, right? So this is, you know, part of the outcomes designed by Washington, you know, what they call decoupling or de risking, whatever they call it. I think we should not underestimate that impact. I think it's mm-hmm. indeed happening. I certainly hope that the extent of this happening is very limited, but you know, we don't know yet. Uh, we have to see in the long run whether it's going to materialize in a, in a major way. However, I do want to point out this very bright spot in China's exports in the last few months. That has to do with the trade with Russia. And if you look at the chart of uh, China's exports with, with a list of the largest trading partner in the are so all minus percentage
1: points, yeah. right? Japan was- Korea with the United States with everyone
0: with almost everyone but with with Russia Russia, as well 70% increase Russia is becoming rapidly as one of the largest trading partners of China as a single country my projection is that the total trade with Russia by the end of this year would be maybe close to 250 billion dollars I and mean, that's a huge number the two governments have said announced that they strive to reach 200 billion dollars that number is going to be passed for sure I think I, I just came back from Russia a few weeks ago actually you know you, on the streets of Russia for example you'll see more and more cars from China companies like GD cherry uh, Great Wall, you know they're all doing great in, in Russia so I think you know at least um, in a sort of a, a very strong political geostrategic trend in my view you know in, vis-a-vis the West particularly the United States at least uh, one area one region that is seeing a big increase in demand for Chinese products that is Russia. I uh, hopefully um, you know this demand increase will somehow compensate for the loss of business with uh, these Western countries. Yeah.
1: Um, William, let me turn to you. Um, uh, Professor Zhang Gan just made uh, an excellent point in that uh, we're entering in an era of uh, geopoliticization of international trade. Uh, however, you look at it, uh, trade with ASEAN, between China and ASEAN increased. Uh, China-Russia trade increased, and uh, you know China's trade with Belt and Road countries increased uh, significantly to eight trillion yuan with a 7.5% jump. That is a year-on-year figure. How do you look at this trend?
2: Well, globalization is is restructuring the, the, the traditional trade that used to go on was China was the supplier of goods for the whole world. And because of COVID, I think most countries have learned that they need to, to at least supplement their supply chains and to be able to regionalize trade much more. And China has benefited from that because ASEAN, as you said, in Asia have become major trading partners along with Russia for China. So the regionalization of trade is something that has, has happened structurally. One of the other things that accounts for the drop in the volume of exports from China is the shift in demand, most of the demand in the United States and Europe and UK. Uh, is going towards services and away from goods in the post-COVID environment. And China's main exports are goods. So right now, I think uh, we're we're seeing that happen. And I think um, once the mix of goods versus services stabilizes and China opens up uh, for tourism and other services, uh, I think you'll see China's exports start to pick up again. But one of the things that I think we need to worry about, though, is how China will adapt to globalization, you know, version two, which is a much more regionalized set of supply chains and how the United States tensions with China uh, will contribute to that. I, I for one, think that the tensions themselves account for very little of the trade uh, drop-off that we've seen so far. Um, it is very much in specialized sectors like you know, advanced semiconductors. But in terms of the overall goods that have been produced by China, like electric vehicles, uh, I think the demand for, for those have been fairly strong and, and growing over time.
1: Yeah, we've seen uh, a lot of near-shoring and friendshoring. On the other hand, uh, China's trade data with the EU edged down 0.1 percent from a year earlier, and China's trade with the United States and Japan declined 9.6 percent and 5.8 percent, respectively, in the first seven months of the year. Um, other than geopolitics, um, what are some of the other factors? I mean, resulting in these figures. I mean, what about the Fed's rate hike and uh, you know tightening of monetary policies?
2: Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, the, the, the big thing that accounts for the drop in the volume of exports is uh, the fact that the U.S., uh, Europe and U.K. are fighting inflation and they're slowing the U.S. and, and, and European economies down in order to lower the, the inflation rate. But as I said, the shift from services from goods to services is also the, you know, the other major factor that accounts for that drop off in uh, the volume of, US, of China exports.
1: Emmanuel, when I picked up the phone this morning, uh, another piece of announcement from the Joe Biden administration uh, signing an executive order um, that restricts certain American investments on the Chinese mainland, Hong Kong and Macau in high tech sectors, including artificial intelligence, semiconductors and quantum computing. Uh, of course, the rationale behind uh, allegedly was to, uh, you know, address issues of concern you know, these, over these sensitive technologies. Uh, you know, protecting American national security. Uh, what do you make of these new executive orders issued by Washington targeting Chinese high tech sectors?
3: Well, we look back to history to see it, what happens every time the U.S. puts in trade sanctions. It affects the U.S. more than it affects anyone else, uh, and there comes a, it, there's uh, there's price discovery problems. There is. Uh, you know uh, the symmetry of uh, knowledge uh, is affected uh, and so on Uh, and it has a a impact that that works right back into the US economy so we don't have to worry about uh, you know the the headline news as it were but all economies are are facing new challenges because of AI uh, greater productivity which is one topic that we have not had uh, discussed in this conversation uh, and uh, uh, the impact that it has on uh, employment uh, and um, you know breakthroughs in new technologies Uh, and I think that on that front uh, both the US and China on the same footing uh, and the the way to look for an answer as to where that's going to direct us is to track uh, and follow where capital is flowing Um, and as long as uh, you know, whether, China, whether it's China or the US, uh, the corporations have access to capital. Uh, that's where the answer will be in terms of uh, who will make headways as a result. Uh, at the same time, there are developments taking place uh, under the headline. So China and ASEAN, for example, have the world's most developed uh, free trade agreement arrangement. Uh, and so when we think about China, we actually think about China and the ASEAN region uh, to figure out how trade flows are are rearranging themselves, how supply chains are rearranging themselves, uh, and how they are exporting to other markets. So if you see the aggregate uh, play of China plus Southeast Asia with uh, the EU or with the US, uh, it will paint a very interesting
1: story uh, that is actually much more meaningful than the headlines. Emmanuel, do we have conclusive evidence as to the direction of capital flows? Because some chambers of commerce here in Beijing say the capital uh, are fl- flowing out of China to other Southeast Asian countries for example but other data suggests that uh, the opposite is true.
3: Now there's a, a huge battlefield underway at the moment. Uh, what China has uh, is a government that is willing to go into deficit for long periods of time and able to do that Uh, in order to fund capital flows within the economy. And that's what they're doing, the the US does not have that uh, that ability. Uh, But in terms of free market capital, yes, uh, it is uh, swirling around the world, uh, looking for alternatives, uh, both because of geopolitics, but also because of efficiencies uh, and the comparative advantage of different countries. Um, You know, when we talk about China plus one, uh, the countries that are benefiting from China from plus one, other countries who are themselves maturing uh, into a phase of e- the economy, which is one step, um, you know, uh, um, you know, one step, uh, um, you know, related to China in that way. So, so it has to be a uh, uh, an economy that can uh, work in tandem uh, with the development that China is in right now.
1: Yeah. Another major issue is climate change, Professor Zhang Gong, We've seen uh, extreme weather patterns. Uh, we suffered from it. Recently in Beijing, record rainfall, and uh, we've been talking with World Meteorological Organization Director General, who's saying that uh, this trend will continue until 2060, Mm -hmm. uh, independent of what we're doing here on the ground. And uh, talks uh, are about uh, the autumn harvest of China and the flooded uh, fields in northeast of China. How big a concern is that?
0: well well my my heart goes to the people who are affected by this especially those you know families who lost uh, uh family members because of this very unfortunate event. Um, you know uh, I hope them well and I hope that the recovery will, will happen very soon. Um, nevertheless having said that I think uh, you know from an economist point of view it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a sinister uh, theory that uh, natural disasters are not necessarily bad things from an economic development point of view. I mean you can think about how much um, efforts, how many how much capital, how much materials will be pumped into the northern part of China in this region, helping province to reconstruct their homeland, right? Um, that's what GDP, if you think about it. That's all GDP. So, so I think, um, you know, this uh, natural disaster, um, aside from all its uh, bad impact, all its unfortunate impact, um, it does provide a big opportunity for investment in the next quarter. Um, and and that will probably contribute to maybe you know uh, 0.5 percentage of the GDP growth in China next quarter um, and, and moving forward I think more importantly it's the investment related to the the climate change uh, I think uh, you know in China we have a big initiative towards uh, investment towards um, climate related agenda green investment and that's a huge industry unfortunately Chinese companies Chinese technology is actually quite leading in this area uh, in photovoltaic that, for example, uh, in other in, in battery making, in battery storage, in you know, all these cutting-edge technologies, uh, Chinese companies are leading, uh, and also are leading the market as in, the, in the, leading the marketplace as well. So, so that's a that's a very good thing to, to see, uh, and I hope that trend will continue.
1: Of course, uh, that is the hope of many. Um, <laughs> William, how do you look at the impact of uh, climate change? on the world. Economies.
2: I, 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 I want to echo what John just said about the tragedy and loss of lives uh, as a result of this, especially in the, the, the provinces that are just north of Beijing, uh, that it's so unusual. And, and I think one of the things that uh, it will lead to will be agricultural shortages. Uh, now fortunately, um, because of the trade that China has with Russia, uh, perhaps some of that Ukrainian wheat and, and, and oil and cooking oil will find its way into China to try to make up for the short-term shortages that will inevitably occur uh, after things settle down later on this year. Um, And and to get back to your point about the original sanctions and how that has changed the... um, That's leading-edge industries like quantum computing and um, semiconductors in China, most of the funding from that comes from China. 80% to 85% of the funding for those sectors come from within China. So the sources of foreign capital coming in are really a a very small component of that. And the fact that the Biden administration has put restrictions on U.S. investors coming in, I think will have a minimal effect on China's ability to advance in those areas, of which it is very much a leader in in many of those areas.
1: William, John, And Emmanuel, thank you all so very much. And we're coming to the end of this edition of the Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guan in Beijing. Fine. Take care.